Well, hello. Talk racing to me with Naomi, coming right at you from sunny Alexandria. If you're looking to gain some long-term invaluable knowledge when it comes to playing the ponies, you're at the right address. Chief Time from US handicapper Craig Mokowski runs us through the basic aspects of the Time from US speed figures, how they are created, what they stand for, and how you can use them in the most opportunistic fashion. Did you know the Time from Pace projector predicts the visual scenario of the runners in the first section of the race based on the length of the race? And I'm not talking about of course, if you have a five and a half, six furlong specialist going seven furlongs, he or she's always on the front, they're going to be likely on the front again. Of course, that's all taken into account. What I'm talking about is that that vision you see on screen, that picture with the colors, with the horses, first, second, third position, wherever they're at, mile and over, that's a prediction of after four furlongs, so after half a mile, whereas lower distances, it's after two furlongs or a quarter of a mile, as the locals like to say. Craig has a wealth of knowledge and I'm so happy for him to be able to share it with you all. It's just an evergreen learning episode that you can go back to any time. In addition, we cover some of the Kentucky Derby prep action from last weekend as well. Here we go. Craig, let's dive right into this. How are the ratings made? Now, I know you can't give us all the technical jargon, but what factors contribute? I could give it to you, but I'd probably put all your listeners to sleep, so I won't <laughs> do that. Uh, what, mainly what we look at, we're, we give a rating that's like the buyer speed figures that people are used to, which is based on final time. But we also look at all the fractions and rate those as well. And we kind of combine everything into one overall rating. We give some extra credit if horses uh, go a lot faster than you would expect earlier in turf, if they finish a lot faster than than is the norm. So they're a little bit of, a, I say, almost like a two-dimensional speed figure where they go a little bit further than just final time. We'll get to the, the whole story of how they were born in general, but... Were they created on the basis or the premises that perhaps some of the existing speed figures weren't covering those different factors? Yeah, that's exactly how it came to be. It's uh, kind of funny. I know we were talking off air. I, I was spent a lot of time in the Air Force, a lot of my formative years, and I was actually stationed in New Jersey. And at the base library there at McGuire Air Force Base, they had a ton of horse racing books, which I doubt are there anymore. But being a guy who was new to the sport, I basically read everything I could get my hands on. And, you know, I started seeing the falls and just looking at final time. I, I did read all the buyer stuff. I love him. He's, he's a guy that I look up to and still talk to quite a bit. But I, I thought there was more that could be done with, with speed and pace figures. So it just kind of grew over time as a handicapper. I realized that the game was getting tougher. There probably was a time you could win with just final time figures, but it was before my time. And with the publishing of all those books I'm talking about, people got smarter and smarter. So you had to look further. So that's how it began for me. It nearly sounds that you're reminiscent of the good old days where you can get away with creating your own pace figures without anyone else knowing what you're up to. Sure. It was uh, pretty good for a while, but I I'll admit back when I first started doing it, it was uh, pretty crude and, and, you know, crude 
I wasn't as good at it nearly as I am now. And hopefully it's something I keep getting better at. I've learned a whole lot about the game and about the flaws and some of the flaws in the data and the timing and things like that. So I'm sure I made some really bad pace and speed figures in the beginning and hopefully not so much anymore. But it, it is still some art. Uh, it's not all science to it. So there are races that are just really tough to rate and we do the best we can, but we're going to get some wrong. That's only normal for, for anyone in any job to, of course, there's a, a human factor, a human bias or influence there as well. And that, does, that doesn't necessarily take away from the overarching consistency of the figures. And you, you kind of explained it a little bit. So if you had to sum up the basis premises of Time From US figures for someone that doesn't know anything about horse racing and the figures itself, you said it's, it's a final time. You look at the pace setup, the internal splits. I know that you use track biases as well. And you adjust for certain track ratings on the day. And any other factors, or would you care to elaborate a little bit more about those? I know we just try to give the the information to people as simply as we can. Uh, trying to make, I think, a, I don't remember our tagline exactly from the home page, but it's something about playing the races modern faster and more fun and we use i think we were the first to actually use a bunch of colors uh the old daily racing form pps you didn't see anything like that we have colors for track biases we have colors for different service uh surfaces we have colors for when the pace is hot we show the figures in red if it's slow we show them in blue so we try to make it so people can look at our product and see things really quick quickly without just staring at a dull, boring black and white screen. That That's the main premise of Timeform US. And which can certainly be very daunting for new players or anyone even playing for a little bit to really get to grips with reading the past performances in a timely fashion that you really see what's going on. That takes practice. So I very much appreciate the different colors. So you straight away see if a horse was, you know, running into a fast pace, coming from off the pace, which was greatly helped by the horses up front going fast or the other way around. And then you can kind of make a, a more accurate judgment of what might happen on the day. So on a daily basis, where do you come in? Are you actively creating figures or do you oversee the final product or how has that developed over the years? Uh, there are just two of us now. It was just me for a long time. Uh, and then we event, this was when I had my own website. Eventually, the person, a guy named Mark Attenberg, who started Timeform US, reached out to me about doing the figures for them. So I did. Uh, eventually, I got to where I had an assistant who was helping me. And to this day, it's just the two of us. I, I'm still active. I make the figures. I offer also oversee what my assistant does, but honestly, he doesn't really need any uh, assistance because we basically do things exactly the same way. We've been doing it so long together now. Uh, I know you follow me on Twitter. Uh, some of the tracks he does California because that's where he is. I'll often put out what I think the figure is going to be uh, because he's doing it, but it's uh, so it's not official till I get it. And I'm almost always spot on or within a point or two. So it's really rare that anything I do, he would basically do the same thing. So I, while I say I oversee him, that's probably, you know, not really the case. I, I'm just making sure that the technical side of things is right because I'm much more of a computer guy than him. So there's two people covering 
every single race in the United States for all horses. How, how do you stay on top of that? Well, a lot of it has been just developed over the years. And part of my time in the Air Force, I, I learned quite a bit about computers. I learned to program things. And anybody, I, I'm not sure if you've read the Andy Byer books or the James Quinn books on how to make speed figures. And I think in one of them, Andy Byer says you have to have a bottle of scotch and a bunch of paper and pencils. Well, I've cut all of that stuff out because I, I've basically automated everything that can be automated. So at the, you know, and then early in the morning after a racing day, I click a few buttons and I have worksheets which have all of that information on there. And it's just a matter of looking at the rest and seeing how fast or slow we thought the track was. So uh, that can be challenging at times, uh, but there can be tracks when I look at it and it, it may take me two minutes to, to figure out the track. There's some really easy days, uh, like a track at Oakland comes to mind where it's all dirt racing. They only run a couple distances for the most part, and usually the track's really consistent, so the figures are easy. Some other wins like Aqueduct, are, they can be pretty tough in the winter because the, the track gets worked on a lot. But even then, it, it might only take us 15, 20 minutes tops for a track. So we just, you know, we do the best we can. We put a, a good amount of time into it. I, I don't want to say we're not that we're computer generated f uh, figures because we're certainly not. There's some of those out there and I think they're pretty flawed. So we look at every single figure we make, whether it be Gulfstream Park or Foner Park, we're, we're doing the best job we can. But uh like I said, a lot of it's automated after all these years of doing it. So I've cut out all the grunt work. So for those track figures or, or the alteration of the time from you as figures based on the track variant, what goes into upgrading or downgrading a rating based on how the track's playing? How do you measure that? And, and of course, learned how that would play out later on with whatever results you got back. Well, a lot of people don't, a lot of people think we make speed figures by looking at pars and we might say, well, $10,000 claimers should run this time, but they ran this time. So the track is whatever the, the difference was slow or fast, but we don't do that at all at Timeform US. And, and honestly, I don't think Andy Byer does much of that either more himself. We're looking at what the horses have already run and trying to figure out what what they're going to run based on that not just the horse who won but the entire field and it's just a lot of math involved where you're basically using statistics and probability to figure out what is the likelihood that you know we know every horse isn't going to run what you think they're going to run if they did we'd all cash mm -hmm. every bet and uh, make a lot of money but the game isn't set up that way uh, horses don't always perform as we expect but when you look at all the horses, personally, what we do is we look at the last, I want to say it's the last four races that each horse has run. And we look at the top eight finishers in every race. So for every race, we have 32 data points. And then when you start combining races, if there's five races on a card, you, you get over, you know, 150, sometimes approaching 200 data points to try to figure out if the uh, track is fast or slow or just what you'd expect. So obviously some days are easier than others. You have days where the track changes, the weather changes. So those sample sizes can get cut down quite a bit, uh, but you still do the best you can. And I think using the horses in a particular race than some vague class notion works a lot better. 
So in a way, this makes me think of when official handicappers, for example, in Europe as well as in Dubai, uh, assign handicapping ratings to runners after a race or move them up or down, they normally tend to look for some kind of zero horse in a race. So uh, some kind of buyer par or speed figure par, whatever they're using to say this horse ran up to his level any horse that ran over that has gone that many pounds over. So you get a rating of, uh, I don't know, 110 versus he was 108 before because he ran two pounds higher than that compared to the standard in that race. So in a way, that is nearly taking one data point for that race, whereas you guys use a lot of data points to then look at the track variant. Is that correct? Sort of paraphrasing it here. No, I would say that's pretty close. That's a pretty good comparison. Uh I mean, what can happen here in the States is you run into races where there's a lot of horse. There there may very well be races where we're only using one or two horses because you could have a turf race where nobody's run on the turf or only one or two horses. And, you know, those kind can be very tough. So there are times we do that, but we try to use as much data as we can. Uh, when I say we project what horses are going to run, we do look at things like, today's a mile and a 16th and maybe of those eight horses we're looking at three of them have only been running six furlongs so we know those projections aren't going to be very reliable we try to focus on the ones that fit today's race so we're kind of doing the same thing we're looking at a fixed horse or horses that are pretty consistent at the conditions that meet today and as you know our racing we, we can get horses moving from turf to dirt sprints to routes even routes sometimes like at Laurel and in in uh, Belmont, you have one turn miles and then you have two turn mile and a 16th at Laurel. So, you know, it, it can be a little bit different. So we try to narrow it down to the horses we really are confident in that have been running similar to today. So I don't think it's all that much different than what you're describing. So there's a, a couple of questions for me that came out of what you just uh, described. So bear with me. We'll go through the first one. You mentioned it can be tricky to assign the correct figures or to compare the track variant when it comes to turf. Do you think overall the time from US figures are accurate here on turf in comparison to perhaps some of the other figures used? Because we know that in the past it has been tricky because the majority of US racing used to be on the dirt track to now convert to turf. But I felt if you look at time for that's where time from sort of the global presence come in, already having developed speed figures to try and decipher whatever happens in Europe on the turf as well. Yeah, I think uh, it's really helped, as you you were kind of alluding to, I think, in that turf racing has really taken off here. Uh, it's not unusual at some of the bigger tracks to have more turf races than dirt races. And that certainly helps with speed figures. Uh, but I will say as somebody's been doing this for quite a while for Timeform US and even on my own before. One of the things people really love is our turf, turf figures. And I think it's because we take a little bit of a different approach. Uh, we, we do consider final time, but it's a lot less important in turf races for us because final time on turf is more a function of the pace of the race than it is the quality of the horses many times. Uh, it's just 
the way the surface plays, there's a lot of theories about why I, I have my own, but in the end, it doesn't really matter if the theories are right or wrong. I just know what the numbers tell me and, and how to rate the races. So I think it has helped, as you say, that there's more and more turf racing. I mean, it certainly was no fun when there was only one turf race a day. I mean, I can remember those days well as an older guy in my 50s now where, you know, even Belmont Park, uh, the feature might be a turf race at a mile and an eighth, and that was it. That was the only turf race all day. So luckily I didn't make speed figures back then, so I didn't have that headache. But uh, nowadays it's certainly easier. But I think there's more value in the turf figures because people do tend to rely on final time too much. And, and I think we get away from that at time for us. And I think that's why they're so popular with, with our customers. So how does time from us take other factors on the turf into account? You, you mentioned the pace setup is very influential when it comes to the final figures. What else? Uh, mainly it is just the pace and it can range so much on turf that it can almost make final time irrelevant. Uh, we're going to talk about a race a little later, the Kilroy Mile, I believe, where Hit the Road mm -hmm. won this Saturday at Santa Anita. And a lot of people brought up that he ran a slower time by over a full second in an allowance race a couple hours uh a couple races before. And I even noted that the first race of the day was for three-year-old listed stakes horses. And even that one went faster than hit the road. And if you just took those times at face value and looked at the final time, you would be given a grade one winner figures less than uh, what the winner of a three-year-old stake in early March got in, in a listed race. And that just makes no sense. I mean, it can happen. It's possible. I mean, we've seen three-year-olds that are super fast and can hang with their olders. But on turf, it's just really highly unlikely. I can tell you now that is something you would never, ever see in time form over in the UK. They would never have a listed three-year-old with a faster uh, time form rating than a grade one older male winning. Uh, it just, it doesn't make any sense. And I think in those cases, it was largely just a factor of the pace. The pace was slower in that Kilroy mile. And you can see it in how they finished, that the finishing times were fast. And uh, for me, the big difference on turf is that it usually comes down to the finish. The The horses are never really running as fast as they can on turf. The goal is not to run a fast final time. It's to get to the wire first. Mm -hmm. The races become a lot more tactical. So, for example, that really fast allowance race had hit the road, been in it. I would imagine he would have just been a lot closer to, he would have been the same amount of lengths behind as he was in the Kilroy mile, even though the pace was faster and he still would have finished almost as fast, if not as fast and still run down the winner. So it's just something over all the years I've learned. If you use final time to make speed figures on turf only, you're going to make a lot of terrible figures and they're not going to have a lot of utility at the betting window. You mentioned that you have certain theories about the influence on the pace on final time. You said, oh, it doesn't matter as long as your figures stack up. But please do share uh, your theory when it comes to that, because I'm very much intrigued uh, by the differences in pace setup between the two surfaces, especially here in the United States. And now we do see in other parts of the world that there's different riding colonies with different styles when it comes to, you know, 
being close-knit, being fast from the gate, being slower. I always thought they were just a touch faster from the gate in Australia when it came, came to turf racing than, it, for example, they tend to do in Europe. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the influence of the pace on the final time and how that relates to the speed figures. Well, the thing I've noticed on turf is that, for one, and assuming we're talking firm turf, obviously it changes if it rains and we get yielding or soft turf, then the turf can get pretty slow. But almost universally, turf is just a much faster surface than dirt. You can look at it in track records. You can look at it in world records. If you compare to the distances, turf is always faster. So it's just one of those things where it's just a totally different form of racing. And the theories I have one is it it helps to draft a bit in turf races. It's a lot harder to do that in dirt races because you have dirt getting kicked back in your face. And a lot of horses don't really care for that. They're not comfortable. So they go out, they try to get the lead. They try to stay out of that kickback. Mm -hmm. Uh, They, they try to run as fast as they can. And you'll note in most dirt races, the horses are finishing a lot slower than what they start out. The final fractions are almost always a lot slower than the, the opening fractions. Where on turf, it, it's just a completely different story. I, I'm convinced, and we, we kind of saw it with that allowance race. I'm talking at San Anita. We saw it with a horse like obviously a few years ago who would just go as fast as he could as long as he could. And he would always run really fast times because that was just the way he ran and he was taking advantage of that fast surface. But because of the drafting and the lack of kickback, it's not the best way to get to the wire first because when you do that, you often set it up for horses who just draft off of you, kick out in the stretch and are able to pass you because they have energy left and the surface is fine. They haven't been affected by kickback. It's just a matter of they can get a clear run or not. So I just think it's a big mistake when people look at the times. Turf and dirt racing are are just night and day apart. Uh, Different things win the races. Uh, Obviously, you you have to have speed most of the time on dirt. On turf, it's more a tactical thing and a finishing kick. So those are the theories. Uh, As I said, I I can't swear that they're right because it's something that's really hard to prove. But Mm -hmm. in the end, it works out with the numbers that we make because it, it does seem to point out to a lot of winners that if you use final time only, it it just wouldn't work. Well, it does seem that your theories to me seem quite logical and hold up from my own personal experience, what I've seen in races, but also I've worked horses on the turf and on the dirt, and I can vouch for the fact that dirt kickback hurts more than turf kickback. So that does make a fair bit of sense. And going back to what we were discussing earlier about the handicapping, where you're looking for horses to run up to a certain figure, how do you allow age discrepancy? Because if you're looking at the two-year-old races, how do you know what kind of figure they are supposed to run up to to set a good sort of base figure for that race? Well, the thing is, we don't really rely on them uh, unless we absolutely have to. I mean, there will be cases where maybe there's only one turf sprint on the card and it's for two-year-old maidens. And there's actually times where we won't make a figure. We'll just put, we we give the race an I in our codes, which says we just don't have data to make a number. But normally what we'll do is, is just kind of look at that two-year-old race and apply what we get from the other races to the two-year-old race. And the same thing goes for three-year-olds as well. Now, I mean, there will be, 
you know, you might have a two-year-old stakes race with a bunch of horses at five or six horses that have won last time. And we will have a figure for them, which have to be careful because two-year-olds are improving pretty rapidly. Same for three-year-olds for that matter. They're getting faster. They're getting stronger. So we do build in some improvement. So for example, if a, a two-year-old wins with a figure of a hundred, he runs back two months later uh, he wins the race again in similar fashion. We're not going to assume that we expected him to run 100. We might expect expect him to run a 106 or a 107. I, I don't remember what the exact math is. But we definitely are building in some, some projections there, some improvement for maturity. Um, but we try not to use those, if at all possible. Yeah. So getting back to the time from U.S. figures themselves, of course, this is a question that you've been frequently asked. How are they different from other major figures you use, such as the buyer speed figures, perhaps the sheets? Now, I myself mainly use time from US and buyer speed figures and, and kind of use them in, in a complementary fashion. But what have you seen in terms of the differences? Of course, the numbers are different. So how would one go about translating one to the other? Like for buyer speed figures, uh, the general rule is they're about 20 points apart. Uh, we do our figures on the same scale as time form overseas. So a horse running a 130 here is a grade one older type horse. Uh, whereas that might only be, I say only in, in quotes, a 110 buyer, but that's still obviously a top notch grade one performance. And it's pretty consistent. I mean, we don't do a lot of things different. I learned a lot reading Andy Byers' books. I, I'm rating final time just like he does. There are some subjective calls, so all the figures aren't going to always match up perfectly, of course, but our final time figures are generally pretty close for a lot of the, a vast majority of the races, I'd say, with definitely within five points. Uh, for those wondering, our final time figures, you can see them right under the finish position. That's our equivalent of a buyer speed figure. The difference is, is that we have a whole bunch of other figures to go with it. We have one for every point of call. And then we have that overall figure that we talked about earlier that kind of combines all those things together. It also looks at things like running position, where they are in the field, uh, whether they're in front by two or whether they're fighting with another horse, there's just, there's a whole lot of little minutia that goes into it, but, um, and, and they're not huge changes, but it, it does matter. It's clearly easier for a horse to be all alone by himself up front. Uh, so we don't want to give them a whole lot of extra credit. Whereas a horse involved in a three horse speed battle is going to get more credit for going fast. So there's, there's quite a bit to it. We do have a page that kind of explains all these things. It's, uh, timeformusblog.com where a whole bunch of the questions can be answered if there's stuff that we're not going to hit today. Yeah, no, I, I wanted to mention some of the, as you mentioned already, the colors, uh, we'll get to the pace projector and the pace figures in a second as well. And something that I don't see it back as frequently because I use DRF and then I get the US timeform figures underneath, which I think is marvelous. It gives me the best of both worlds. But you don't get um, the little letters behind it that I do see back in Europe, for example, that it's altered for pace or track bias. Can you run us through them really quickly? 
Uh, sure. There's, we have several. I mean, I'm not, I don't have it in front of me, so I won't swear that I'm going to cover all of them, but I, I can hit the big ones. Uh, we have one for which is a P as you say, and that's basically a race where we're saying we know the horses probably didn't run as fast as, as they could have because the pace was, uh, really slow, or it could be the opposite where that, like I said, on turf, they ran so fast early that they ran a faster speed figure than they would under normal conditions. And you'll normally actually see that underneath that finished position. But then when you look to the box with the overall number, which you don't get in daily racing form, that's where you'll see that adjustment was made. But we're basically yeah. trying to use those codes to tell you this was not a straightforward speed figure. Uh, some other ones that we have, we use a T when there's a timing problem, which unfortunately there's quite a bit of them in our game. Uh, that's something I, I'm fighting and working behind the scenes to get better, and it definitely is getting better, I think. But um, for now, there's still plenty of races where I time races from video to get a more accurate time. But in any case, we put a T there to let people know um, – that, yeah, there were timing problems with this race. So if you look at the raw fractions in the time and the figure doesn't make sense, there's probably a good reason for it. Uh, some other ones we use, we have an F for, uh, like you mentioned, the two-year-olds. Uh, if it's a race with mostly or all first-time starters or horses trying turf for the first time, those can be tough figures to make. And particularly, like, maybe it was a day where, at Gulfstream Park where it was firm turf all day and then they got one of those late afternoon rain showers and the last race was a maiden race on turf and only a couple horses have run before. So we're going to put that F there to tell you it's all first timers. We didn't have a lot of data. We did the best we could with it, but if a horse from this race has the best speed figure, I wouldn't be uh, taking out a second mortgage on my house to bet. <laughs> well, that's a very good information to know and use. And as you mentioned, indeed, that final number doesn't appear on the DRF form. So I tend to also use the website to then look at the, the final numbers. And that also gets me to, to the next point. How can someone best use multiple figures, including time from years, or for example, buy order sheets in, in complementary fashion? Because sometimes... As you mentioned, there is some discrepancy. Do you think that's maybe where the value lies? I mean, I think there is some value in that. I personally don't look at figures very often from anyone else. Uh, that's probably being a little uh, <laughs> egotistical, I guess. But, you know, it's my work, so I'm not going to trust others. But I do know it. You know, look, the guys on the buyer team, they're smart guys. I, I know several of them. I've talked to them. I have a good relationship. I mean, after all, we, we work for the same company in daily racing form. Um, and we work together on a lot of the timing issues. So it's not like we have any uh, agenda against each other or anything. But if I were looking at two sets of figures, and like I said, there's that 20-point gap. The first thing that would jump out to me, if I gave a, a horse 100 and Andy Beyer gave it a 65, I would say that was a tough figure to make. No matter whose I believe, I, I'm going to be a little more skeptical and maybe look for some some extra value on the tote board because you know I there there clearly was some issues going on. Now maybe in time form US we'll have a code there that might explain the difference, or maybe you can look at the pace figures and see it was a crazy fast pace or crazy slow pace, and that's something where they they just don't have that ability with buyer because they just have the one number. So. Mm -hmm. If I were using both, that's what I would do. I would look for the ones that have a big difference. And 
I am smart enough to know that the buyers are a lot more popular than mine. They get bet a lot more heavier than mine. So, you know, if he had a horse slow going in that I had fast, then I'm going to be more likely to to play that horse because I know if I'm right, I'm probably getting even extra value because his numbers are getting bet more than mine are. Yeah, well, because frequently people grabbing the form, it tends to be the past performance and that solely include the buyer speed figures. That's sort of the main go-to for a lot of people betting at the tracks or in horse racing. It seems anyway, here in the US, they, they were the first figures that I dealt with when uh, going stateside and really looking into every single race and every single runner. So I do understand that. And hence, I think it's wonderful to have that second set of figures that, as you mentioned, can sometimes highlight something that on face value others might miss, which we all love, right? We're all looking for some information that's slightly different or, or some value. Looking at some of the other aspects that Time From US provides, the, the difference in information, how can one use the Time From US pace figure and projector and how is it made? The pace projector is made by looking at how horses run early in the race. It's looking at how fast they ran on the clock, which of course I'm using pace figures because it gets adjusted for the speed, but also the position because oftentimes you might see horses who have a higher pace figure who are in fifth and it's just because they're trying to keep up. It doesn't necessarily mean that's their style. So we're looking at both running style and how fast they do it. And we're trying to tell you where the horse, where we think the horses are going to be positioned early in the race. For races less than a mile, we're telling you after two furlongs. And for races a mile and a long, uh, longer, after the first four furlongs. And we just think it's a, a really good starting point for people who are trying to assess pace. Uh, we certainly don't get them all right. I mean, it's impossible to get all the horses right. But I think we do a really good job of coming close a lot of times and also identifying situations where there's either a lot of speed or no speed whatsoever, which can certainly have an effect on the outcome of the race. Um, it's when we do it in a picture kind of format. Uh, so you can kind of see how they line up visually, which isn't always easy to do. Yeah, we can look at horses past performances in DRF and, and see three or four horses with a bunch of ones in there and we know they might be fighting for the lead but what the pace projector will tell you is there may be a one or two who are just a lot faster than the others that's going to put the other speed horses at a disadvantage and maybe um, make them non-contenders even if they look good on final time uh, it all also might say that hey there's three or four horses who want the lead they're all fast they're going to battle and, and it's a good chance it'll set it up for an off the pace type. And that's uh, where you can get a lot of prices these days. It, it's tough to make a living trying to bet speed horses on dirt because that's what everybody does. Uh, so we're looking for those situations that stick out. Me personally, I, I think it's more of a secondary factor. I, I know there's some really sharp handicappers. Uh, there's a guy, Mike Maloney, who actually wrote a book for DRF who he basically starts the race with making pace projections. I'm more a guy who kind of rates the horses. I look at who I think the contenders are, how they stack up. And then I kind of use the pace projector as a tiebreaker or a way to sort out the horses I think are close together. So for me, even though I designed it, it's not a primary tool. It's more a secondary tool, but still a really important one to my handicapping. Yeah, for me as well, just trying to visualize 
where the runners are going to be in the race and if that is beneficial or detrimental to their running style can really sort of put a horse in front of another in my selections uh, for sure. And just talking a bit more about the global aspect of time form. So of course we have time form, yes, but we also have time form in Europe, in the United Kingdom. How is that beneficial to people being familiar with the time form scale and time form figures to then, for instance, have European contenders come up to the United States to compete in the Breeders' Cup races, in, in the t- big turf events. How can they make best use of that to then maybe even transfer, as you mentioned, 20 points difference with the buyer figures to then get a bit more of a lay of the land in terms of who's the contenders and who aren't? Because it can be very tricky for Americans to get a grasp of that European form. So how does time form help with that? Yeah, the scale is a big deal. Uh, we spent a lot of time on that when Timeform US was first starting. Uh, Timeform is obviously very proud of what they built over more than a century, I believe, at this, this point. And that was a big goal to make sure that our scales lined up. So when horses shipped over here, the figure showed where they belonged. You know, if we had American horses running 125s, here and a shipper showed up with 130 time form rating, they're probably the best horse. And I think we've achieved that. Uh, It has come where the Europeans, to my eye, haven't been as dominant as they were five or six years ago. I can remember when time form US first came to be, um, it seemed like every European shipper who came over had better ratings and, and were winning most of the races. And that was great for us. Nowadays, they come over, I think, U.S. turf racing has gotten better and they're more competitive with the European shippers. Uh, Don't get me wrong, the European shippers still win their fair share of races, but you will see in our figures that they don't stand out as often as they used to. And I do think we're seeing that in the results as well. Sure, I mean, in the Breeders' Cup, we get the best of the best. Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I think we had some pretty good winners from overseas, but they also look very good on the numbers on the time form scale compared to our speed figures. So it is something that's important to us. It's something we spent a lot of time on originally, and it's something we maintain. We, we keep monitoring it to make sure nothing's gotten out of kilter as well. When you were mentioning the difference in six years ago, uh, European horses coming over and their high time form ratings, uh, making them quite superior to the American turf runners, uh, I have to agree that over the last half decade, the continued growth of turf racing, its purses, as well as trainers importing European bloodlines or European ladies, but now also the the more emphasized breeding angle in the US itself when it comes to turf racing has, I think, contributed to elevating the turf standard when it comes to the the American runners, which I much appreciate. I think it's wonderful that these two continents are able to compete when it comes to that, because of course it's, we don't often see that many Australians coming over to the United States, whereas they have incredible turf racing as well. So it's just a lot of fun when you do get that competitiveness between different jurisdictions. And before we get into the Derby prep race figures uh, that I really want to talk about. And of course, a couple of the grade one uh, races from the past weekend, just as as from a, a learning point of view, I wanted to, you to kind of walk us through your background. You hinted at your time uh, in the USA Air Force, how you kind of started off being fascinated 
by racing as well as how how your knowledge of computer programs has helped you develop uh, these different programs and knowledge because this is not easy and i've read plenty of handicapping books as well this is a very intricate business as we've just laid out over the last uh, half hour or so yeah, it's my background was, uh, I think I mentioned all fair. I went to high school with Larry Comas. I, I grew up in Baltimore. Um, and even though the Preakness is there, I, I remember hearing about Secretariat and Seattle Slough. But I was just a kid then. My, my family wasn't really into horse racing. So other than watching the Kentucky Derby on TV, I knew very little about it. And then in high school, I met Larry. We had a lot of classes together. And he finally beat me down. It took some work for him to finally get me to go to a racetrack. We actually went to Bowie, which is no longer around, but that was our first track. And the first race I ever saw, he took me up to the announcer's booth and we were there with a legendary in Maryland, Dick Woolley, uh, calling the races. And he was super nice. And he actually gave me a, uh, a little tip at the time on a, a trainer named Odie Cleland, who was uh, really good with first-time starters. And you got to imagine back in the early 80s, this was not information at your fingertips like like it is now. Like now with all the numbers and yeah. Right. And the horse won at, I don't know, something six or eight to one. And I just said, wow, this is the greatest game they've ever made. I, you know, I've basically been going every Easy since. money. <laughs> yeah, of course it didn't turn out that way, but uh took a lot of work. Uh, it's, it's, it seems to happen a lot to, to get people interested in the sport, but then you find out it's a really difficult game. But in my, for me, at least with my kind of personality, that that's why I love it. I love a challenge like that. And I've stuck with it ever since. So no matter where I've been in the world or in the U S uh, I've always been following horse racing since I was basically 15 or 16 years old. But then you continued by actually starting to actively make your own pace figures. So you created a website as well. Uh, uh, what was it? Paceadvantage.com, right? Correct me if I'm wrong there. No, and it was pace, pacefigures.com. Pacefigures.com. I am but, so sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It doesn't exist anymore, so it's fine. But uh, paceadvantage.com is also a site where it's a message board for horse racing. And I can honestly say without it, uh, I wouldn't be where I am today because I was just doing pace and speed figures for myself. I had no mm -hmm. in interest ever in selling them or making it a job or a business or anything like that. But what happened was uh, a horse named War Emblem came along and long before, uh, even before the Illinois Derby, uh, where he romped and kind of thrust into the main stage, I had pointed out his allowance race where he romped before that was really good. And I thought he was a serious derby contender and he wound up winning a 20 to one. I had posted about it. A bunch of people were writing and saying, Hey, what are these numbers you're talking about? And started asking to buy them. And it just kind of went from there, you know, from just a handful of people. And to be honest, uh, they had to convince me because I, I didn't really want to do it, but it's a, Especially one guy, a Canadian friend of mine, a guy named Keith Lance, kept saying, man, you, you got to do this. You got to do it. So he finally talked me into it and I started selling them to people and it just kind of took off from there. People were happy with it. And I basically did that for the next, who was that, 2002? I probably did it for another 12 or 13 years until Time Form US came along and 
made me an offer that was too good to pass up. And by an offer that was too good to pass up, I mean, it was, it meant I was no longer programmer, webmaster, customer service, you know, I wasn't doing every single thing. Uh, I had a team and, and I could just rely on making speed figures. So that's what I've been doing ever since. And, and I couldn't be happier with it. At the time when you were starting out making speed figures and selling them, were you still in the Air Force back then as well? Or how did that sort of develop? Yes, uh, it actually started. I mean, I've been I was making them on my own in the Air Force for a long time. But when uh, when I actually started to sell them was towards the end of my career before I retired the last few years. And it was just kind of a part time job for me. I did have one guy who who helped me out, a guy named Jared Brush. And uh, he was invaluable to me, especially when I would get uh, assigned to somewhere not so nice where I didn't have great access, he would take over for me and we would work together. Luckily, I was in a communications unit, so I could always call or reach him on a computer or something. But yeah, for the most part, it was just a part-time thing until I retired for the Air Force. And then I did it for a few years on my own. And finally, Timeform US came to my rescue. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, it must have been a mutually beneficial offer and relationship that has developed from that. So uh, on, on that note, we'll move on to actually discussing some of the action that the majority of horse racing enthusiasts will have watched over the last uh, weekend. Of course, uh, it's now a couple of days afterwards. Uh, we can discuss this now. The dust has settled. Let's uh, kick things off with, Arguably, the performance of the weekend, Life is Good's uh, huge eight-length win in the Grade 2 San Felipe, which guarded him quite a high time from US figure, as well as a very high 107 buyer figure. And I know the time from US figure, I do believe, was 130, which you then started to put in perspective as well against some other US speed figures uh, for three-year-olds in March or early. We'll get to that in a second, but how did you end up on that figure? Uh, it was a pretty straightforward day at Santa Anita. As I mentioned, my assistant does Santa Anita, but I remember putting out what I thought they would be, and we matched spot on, so we obviously agreed 100% on this one. Um, I should mention 130 is with a pace adjustment because he went fast early. The mm-hmm. final time figure was a 128. So that kind of shows that buyer thing I was talking about where we're 21 points apart. So just a point different. And then we give a little extra pace adjustment. Um, it was the fastest race I've seen from a three-year-old in at least a very long time that I can remember this early in the season. I mean, he wasn't beating any chopped liver in Medina Spirit. He was a horse who had run just as fast as every other three-year-old except for life is good coming into this race. And he beat him, beat him very easily as a speed figure guy. I'm not sure how you account for his drifting and his bearing out in the stretch Mm -hmm. that that is something I have a little concern about, but in the hands of a guy like Bob Baffert, I'm going to bet that he's probably going to be able to get him straightened out. And And it makes you wonder just how fast can he run if he actually ran straight. Yeah, and he actually kept focusing it and kept continuing using his energy in a forward movement instead of sideways. But yeah, but we see that quite well. We see that more frequently. Horses developing throughout their career and getting more professional with every single start. And you said earlier, uh, of course, your presence on social media. I do indeed follow you on Twitter because you come out with a 
absolute gems and finds that I would have never known about otherwise. And one of them is one of your tweets saying you searched the last five years. These are the fastest time from US speed figures by a three-year-old in March or earlier. Life is good heads them at 130. Of course, justify the triple crown winner in third that with 125. So how do you put his performance in perspective? Are we looking at an incredibly special cult here? Yeah, we are. I mean, there's no doubt as a speed figure guy. I mean, he's basically off the charts from what we've seen. Uh, even a horse like American Pharaoh, he ran in March, uh, didn't run a particularly good figure. He he beat a field. I was actually at Oakland that day. It was in the slop. It was basically a paid workout. But even when he came back in uh, April in the Oakland Derby, he ran a 123, which is seven points lower a month later on the schedule. And we know what kind of horse he turned out to be. So for a horse to do this in his third career start, it is around two turns is pretty mind-blowing. I remember Justify, I think for me, ran a 131 in his debut race. And if he got back to that, I, I'm not sure. Maybe he tied it at some point. But that blew me away as well. He did that in February in a maiden race. But this was just just huge. I mean, I, it's it, it blew me away when he just pulled away from the horses like that. Um, I, I think that was the strongest field we've seen yet. And he won by eight lengths. I thought there were some good, some good efforts in there. Dream Shake, who in just his second career start, I thought he ran a very good race for his first time around two turns, first time against winners. And even Roman Centurion ran well. Uh, he, th- Those horses would have won a lot of the prep races based on our speed figures. So just a really strong race. And, and the fact Life is Good was able to win by eight lengths tells me he's special. Yeah, I was a... Uh... Discussing this with one of my friends who's based uh, on the West Coast, I was saying, man, you West Coast guys have got all the goods when it comes to the three-year-old uh, derby horses at present. Now, we've seen some nice performances on the East Coast as well, of course, but life is good. Certainly uh, took the cake on the weekend. We'll move on to the second race uh, on my order here, the Grade 2 Tampa Bay Derby, whereby Helium ran an 84 buyer with his victory in a 109 time from us perhaps uh, knocking him down sort of the pecking order a little bit when it comes to those derby preps yeah his final time was a 107 from us so again 23 points from buyer but he got a couple extra points because of the pace but i'll be honest he's a horse uh, i am a speed figure guy of course but i as a better i know you can't just bet speed figures mm-hmm. and he had a pretty impossible trip, the kind of trip that horses rarely ever win with, where he was basically four or five wide on both turns. The pace wasn't super fast. So if there's a horse I'm going to upgrade off of a 109, it's him. Uh, he did it first time around two turns, first time on dirt. Uh, he came from well back, but he didn't make one of those plotting moves where he was battling to get into contention. He was in the contention on the turn. So He's a horse who I, I think is probably a bit underrated by most people because that is not a trip that works on dirt very often. You mentioned a, a sort of a slower pace early on and a horse trying to run into that. How tough is that? And I know that I tend to upgrade horses that are trying to make up ground into a slow pace, and especially if they're successful. To me, that says something about their talent. But how do you look at that? 
it kind of depends on the circumstances. I, on turf, for sure, I think that's a big deal. Any horses uh, that can close, making, and when I say close, I mean usually horses make up lengths on the leader, but I'm talking about getting the contention and even fight for the win after a slow pace, especially if they're wide. Uh, for me, those are special efforts. On dirt, it, it can be a little bit tricky because early speed is so important on dirt that sometimes it's an illusion. Horses close into a slow pace, but maybe the horses in front of them just weren't very good. So I think it is a little bit trickier. I, I like to watch replays and, and see how much horses are making those moves within themselves as opposed to being all out. Um, so I'm not as forgiving for slow paces on dirt. And we'll move on to the third of the preps on our list, which is the grade three. Gotham won by Weber and Trevor McCarthy on board. 95 buyer and uh, a 113 US time from pace figure and at Aqueduct. And I do believe that you were saying that that was, was that a tricky day to, to like judge the, the track at that point? Or was that just in general when you were saying the Aqueduct can sometimes be, uh, you know, very, has a bit of variant? Aqueduct is always tricky. It is, uh, it's causing me a lot of gray hair, I will say. Um, and I should say during the winter meet, when they winterize the track, which I think is after Thanksgiving until sometime maybe April. I've, they usually make an announcement when they're going back to normal. But this year has been as tricky as any I can remember, not just because it's been really slow, which has been the norm the past couple years, uh, but also because it seemed to change often throughout the day. And this is one of those cases on Saturday where the track just started out super slow, then it got just to very slow, and then by the end of the day, it was just regular slow. Uh, you know, I could put numbers on that, but they wouldn't mean anything to anybody. Uh, but the last couple races made it pretty clear that the track was a lot faster than it was early in the day. Uh, the winner, Weyburn, got a 113 time form US speed figure for me. So pretty solid effort, particularly when you figure he hadn't run since December. Uh, he had never been a route before. This was just a one-turn mile in, in, the, in New York since they went to that uh, winterized track where they used the main track. It used to be it would be a two-turn race at the Gotham when it was on the inner dirt. But I thought it was a solid effort. I mean, I'm not going to knock it. He was certainly very game. He came back to get the lead after being passed by crowded trade. And, you know, the pretty good future for this one. This was a race where there wasn't a lot of pace on. You can see by the pace figures, the race was getting faster throughout. So it probably did favor horses up near the front. And maybe highly motivated would be the one horse I'd point to who probably ran a little better than the number would show he got a 110 but he kind of got a tough start he got stuck in behind horses through that slow pace it looked like he wanted to go but he had nowhere to go and he did have some run when he got out so I thought the winner ran fine I thought highly motivated probably needs uh, a little better trip and I think he's better than what he showed that day as I move on uh, to the races for the older horses, the Grade One Santa Anita Handicap, uh, we saw Idol best uh, a heavily backed Max Fielder who ended up finishing uh, into third. He got a one twenty six uh, time form US figure. Uh, how did you end up on that? I know you were saying uh, West Coast is not your uh, not your track, but I know you have some knowledge uh, behind the figures. 
Oh, sure. We, me and David Aragona, who works for Niver, he does the morning line. We do a uh, podcast on Fridays where we make selections. And I think Idol might have been the only one I actually got right. So I do <laughs> definitely do follow uh, California racing because I love betting it. Uh, I, I've always been fascinated by California racing, even when I grew up in, in Maryland, just because of the super fast times and mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of horses. There's a Maryland horse I'm sure you've heard of, Broad Brush, who went out to win the Santa Anita Handicap when he was a four-year-old, and that was kind of like a huge thing in Maryland at the time. Uh, it wasn't even like we could watch the race. We had to see replays on ESPN a few days later. You know, it's uh, that's how old I am for these. But yeah, I do love California. It was good to see uh, the big cap kind of get some of its glory back. It it's been struggling to say the least the last couple of years, but mm-hmm. I thought this was a, a really nice effort from idol. He looked like the quintessential horse to me that wants a mile and a quarter, the way he runs it, it kind of takes him a while to get going. You got to get started with him early and just give him room to run. And I thought he got a, uh, just a great ride. He was kept outside the whole way. So his run wasn't interrupted and he was able to get the job done. Uh, I thought it was a, a really good race for people betting. Uh, there was a lot of talk about it on Twitter, as I'm sure you saw. And a lot of, for me, is you get horses like um, Maxfield who get this reputation and they just get over bet. And as people who are betting the races, I think these are the kind of situations you really want to look to take advantage of because – to me, he wasn't any faster than anybody than several others in the race. He ran just fine. He ran, I think he ran a point faster than he had in the past, but it just wasn't good enough because he was stepping way up in competition. So as a better, if I could pass one thing on to people, it's avoid these hype horses, uh, particularly when they don't have any edge at the windows. I can remember there was one in the, uh, Breeders' Cup Juvenile Phillies this year who hadn't run uh, particularly fast at all for Bob Baffert. I, I forget her name. I remember she got injured earlier this year, but she was another one. She wound up going off the favorite, even though she came in looking a lot slower. And don't get me wrong, sometimes they'll beat you. But, you know, if they're three to five or four to five or even money, who cares? You don't have to be right that often to make money in those spots. Yeah. No, uh, uh, how does it work, though? Um, talking about Idol's trip and how you said he is the type of horse that, you know, gets, you know, gradually gets going and gets that perfect kind of pace set up that they are running very sort of similar speeds around the track. Do you upgrade or downgrade a horse based on that? Because I, I do believe that if a horse is running similar-ish um, speeds in the different quarters, that tends to to garner a, a faster end time than when they would go very fast early, as you mentioned, and then slow down a lot later or the other way around. Yeah, for a horse like Idle, he didn't get any extra credit, but he didn't get anything taken away either. His his overall figure matched the um, the final time figure. He got that one twenty six, and I think that was pretty much a case for most of that field because. The pace was pretty even throughout it, throughout. It didn't really favor anybody. It was just a case where the best horse won the race. And, you know, the and particularly in his case, we don't do ground loss in our figures, but he certainly lost per, plenty of ground. But the ground loss thing can be tricky because in his case, I think it's actually a good thing. If he was a horse who sat on the rail and was behind horses, I don't think he'd run nearly as well. So... We don't tackle the ground loss issue. We leave that to handicappers. And 
Uh, for the most part, unless the pace is pretty extreme, you won't see very big adjustments from us. And we didn't really have any in the uh, San Anita Handicap. Just picking up on something interesting here that you mentioned that you don't do that much with ground loss. Do you think that that's not a factor to include in the, in the pace figures because it's so hard to quantify? I think if there was a way, if we had the data provided to us, I would try. I, I have some pretty good ideas. Um, I think ground loss matters sometimes and sometimes it doesn't, to be honest. Uh, I like to use the analogy that if I go for a walk with somebody out on a, a standard 400 meter track, if the person I'm walking with walks on the inside rail and I walk on the far outside, I can keep up with them all the way around without exerting very minimal extra effort. And it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. But if we decide for the second lap, we're going to run and we stay in those same paths, I'm in big trouble. So for me, what I would do with ground loss is I look for when the race is fast. So if it's a fast paced race, the first turn is going to be critical. That's where you don't want to lose ground. If it's a slow pace race and everybody's walking up front, it doesn't really matter if you're on the rail or if you're four wide. It's when the real running begins on the second turn, everybody's accelerating. And we see this a lot on turf races. Horses try to make a wide move into a slow pace and they just can't gain because the horses in front of them are all, not only are they quickening because that's the way the race set up, they're also running a shorter distance. So if I'm going to tackle pay, uh, ground loss, and, and someday I do hope to uh, numerically because I have tested it a bit, it's going to matter where you lose ground, not just how much, where and when. That is certainly very good knowledge uh, to take on board for all the handicappers uh, amongst us as we'll move on to the final race that we'll discuss. And before that, I do believe it was Princess Norris sitting here racking my brain for the name of the Bob Bafford filly in the um, British Cup Juvenile Phillies that didn't perform. I think it was Princess Nora, but obviously don't quote me on that one. Yeah, As all so finished, yeah, Okay, glad you, I was sitting here going, oh God, I was there. Who was the Bafford filly that didn't uh, finish as strongly? And of course, Vaquist won. The last race, grade one, Frank E. Kilroy, mile stakes, a mile on the turf. So this is obviously great because we can kind of uh, reiterate what you mentioned earlier on the show. Hit the road, uh, got there by, ooh, I think it was a neck uh, on the day, Florent Giroux on board, providing uh, trainer Dan Blacker with his first ever great one winner. So massive congratulations to him. Of course, that is, you know, a special moment for any trainer, but... Looking at the performance of Hit the Road, he got a, a 123 time from US uh, figure, which to me seems, uh, you know, what, within range of what you'd expect from that kind of race. But how do you feel uh, it set up that day and, and how did you end up on that figure? I thought the pace was pretty moderate. Uh, it was a day where the times were pretty crazy. As I mentioned earlier, we had an allowance race that went faster earlier on the day, a lot faster. And then yeah. we had a three-year-old stake that went just minimally faster, but there was no way that we could rate these races together. My assistant does these, but I would have done the exact same thing. Uh, maybe a point or two different somewhere, but it would have been along the same vein because I mean, these are horses we know. I mean, they run all the time. They run consistent. That's the one good thing about turf horses. Uh, they they race a lot longer. We often see them sticking around five, six, even seven years old. 
racing repeatedly. So we know when they get a good trip and run their race, pretty much where they're going to finish. Now, in this case, we had a couple relative youngsters and hit the road and smooth like trait who were fairly newly turned four-year-olds and they were able to step up and beat some of their older rivals that we saw in here but it wasn't any big surprise i think they were the top two in the betting or very close to it if not and a big part of that because they had been you know running decent speed figures but also because uh, particularly in smooth like straights uh, point he has a good tactical speed and there didn't be appear to be a lot of speed in here now there was a horse flying scotsman who kind of rushed up from the outside took the lead but even that even so he didn't do it in particularly fast time so the pace figures were slow we even had the three quarter and the mile figure coated in blue as being slow mm-hmm. and I thought it was a really good effort from Hit the Road. Uh, He definitely got a great ride from Florent Drew, who saved all the ground, had to kind of squeeze through. But I don't think it was a case where he was ever going to get blocked because he had room if Smooth Light Straight had tried to kind of move down to the rail. He had room to go out. and I just think he was going to wear him down no matter what happened, given that ride that he was given. He had run a big race in his return. It didn't get a great speed figure from us. It got a 117 which fit in here, but it didn't make him a standout or anything. But the one thing I had warned about on our podcast was that you have to be uh, give a special attention to turf horses that win a race like he did last time because you don't often see horses win graded stakes races by three lengths on the turf. It, it's because they kind of sit around and, and watch each other and all try to outfinish, so it's hard to open up that kind of gap. And the way he did it kind of led me to believe Maybe he had more in the tank. I didn't bet him because I wasn't sure, and it was a tough quality field, but I'm sold after this one. He showed me he is the real deal and definitely the leader of that division in California and maybe even nationally. There were a couple decent other performances. Smooth like straight ran his usual very good race. He always seems to run around a 120, but the eye-catching one for me, and particularly as a Timeform US user, was Count Again. Uh, one thing I like to do is look in our charts and, and see how the horses uh, have just how the race kind of shaped up. And the first thing I notice is that other than the leader who dropped way out of it, the in the top four, the finishers, uh, the top four finishers, three of them were running early, two, three, and four, whereas count again came from 10th. So he was obviously finishing a lot faster than everybody else. He was only beaten about a half length in here. So outside the winner, he is the one who really caught my eye. He had run a huge race by us with a 124 back in November. He got back to a 122 in here after, I don't know what happened in January. He just ran a terrible race that day, but he clearly was back in form for Phil D'Amato. And, and I thought he was pretty eye-catching. This is actually quite a coincidence that you highlight that to me. One of the factors that make me think you have a very good turf horse on your hand is their ability to accelerate late. And for Count again, as you mentioned, the one, two and four horse were all close to the pace, which wasn't very present. There wasn't a fast pace early for him to come out of it, even though it wasn't, you know, completely like it wasn't double digits behind them, but out of it nonetheless to then come and accelerate that late to me signifies quite a decent turf horse with that ability to to turn on the propellers, so to speak, late. So I like that you highlighted that because that's something that I think translates across the globe when it comes to looking at turf race. Because as you mentioned, they're all looking at each other who gets 
the trip, uh, where does the gap open, sitting behind them, and, and that all, ta- you will you take that into account. So if you have a horse that is able to wait for as long as possible to get the perfect kind of setup and then go, you definitely have a flexible runner on your hand. Now, Craig, you mentioned uh, the podcast that you do, a Time From US podcast. So where can people find it and where can they find you uh, on social media as well if they want to get uh, more knowledge? Because you do put up uh, a lot of good sort of historic comparisons and just in general uh, Time From US figures that you put on that I think are very useful to the majority of our listeners. Okay, I do want to warn people, if they follow me on Twitter, you have to put up with my terrible sports stakes because I literally watch anything where they keep score and have an opinion on it. (laughs) Often wrong, but never in doubt. (laughs) So if you strictly want horse racing, you should follow the Timeform US account, which is just at Timeform US. If you want to follow me, it's the same, but with figs on the end, F-I-G-S. So it's at Timeform US figs. We do a podcast, me and David Aragona, we do a couple a week. Uh, We try to keep them under an hour usually, so we we don't bore people too much. But uh, what I like about it is David and I approach races completely differently. He's a big trip handicapper guy. He's a big breeding guy. I've learned a lot from him. Hopefully he's learned some from me. Uh, We've both done pretty well. Uh, what we do on Tuesdays is we do a recap of all the big races. Like, for example, this week we we did all the derby preps, Santa Anita, Tampa. I think we even covered a little Oakland. And then on Fridays we do what we call the Timeform US forecast where we pick, you know, it could be five, six, seven, maybe eight races that we handicap. Usually they're stakes races, but not always. Sometimes we'll do a pick five sequence with which might include allowance or maiden races or just whatever happens to fall in it. Uh, just depends what looks good around the country, but it's kind of a good way for people to hear how we use Timeform US and also DRF. Uh, David uses DRF as well, and I, and I do for some things too. I, I love the uh, trainer stats and formulator, so I use them quite a bit. Uh, I look looking up some jockey stuff, so I do use both. I have the luxury as an employee to, to be able to have access to them. Uh, so that's where you can find them. Uh, we, we post them on Twitter when they're out. They're also on the DRF channel on uh, YouTube and they're available at, on the, if you search DRF TV on the DRF website. Oh, thank you so much for that, Craig. And I agree. I love using all the different tools that are available. Love my DRF formulator as well. Uh, just like looking up stats for trainers, visiting how often if they had runners here or anything, really anything when it comes to class droppers or age differences or trips uh, in terms of like the le- anything, anything. So yes, I agree with you there. Uh, thank you so much for your, your time today. It was incredibly informative and I particularly enjoyed it. Well, thanks. You made it very easy and had a great time. Happy to come on anytime. I can't thank Craig enough. I personally use Typhoon frequently and love the ability to compare European contenders coming over as well as the influence of pace on the result of turf and dirt racing. If you want to know more, Craig happily answers questions via social media. Find him on Twitter at TimeFromUSFigs. The main Timeform account is at TimeFromUS. His account is at TimeFromUSFigs, F-I-G-S, behind it. He also shares historical facts and comparisons. So give him a follow if you'd like to impress your horse racing friends with a couple of fun facts. I'm in a wonderful mood 
because the sun is out. I'm hoping you all have a wonderful weekend coming up, plenty of action. So sit outside, soak up some sun rays, have a little drink or so, whatever you're drinking. Tea's fine too, I prefer wine, but there we are. It's supposed to snow again next week. Also, much more importantly, 50 days to the Kentucky Derby as of today, Thursday, March the 1st. That is worth a toast in itself. The Kentucky Derby Trail is in full swing and nothing makes me happier. Three-year-old top athletes in full flight. Of course, all the coverage, everything coming up, you can find on inthemoneymedia.com. Follow the In The Money Media podcast feed. Follow Talk Racing To Me and check in again with me next week. You know where to find me. 